And I'm speaking with Troy Anderson. He is the Executive Director of Officer Safety and Wellness at the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund in Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about it when I read your bio, Troy. You, you, um, you went to Sandy Hook. Uh, you led this team of uh, Connecticut State Police Critical Incident Stress Management. And um, beyond comprehension, what happened there, uh, what was your first impression and your first priorities on your arrival there? Well, when I got the call that day uh, to, to go to Newtown, it was still an active shooter event. So clearly the first thing that our, our intent when we got there was uh, you know, to neutralize the threat and the preservation of life, right? That, that's what we were going to do. Um, by the time I got to the scene, uh, the tactical team had already made entry and they were doing their clearing. So at that point, you know, then it was really sort of reverting back to what I was. And, and, and at the time, uh, I was the program manager for our STOPS program, which is State Troopers Offering Peer Support, uh, our two critical incident stress management teams, our chaplaincy program, and our military support team. So I, I've been doing that for a number of years. That, that wasn't something that came about that day. Uh, I actually thought the idea up in 2005, and it went live and was implemented as part of legislative intent uh, for the Connecticut State Police to have a peer support program. Uh, and we, we just had an amazing team uh, that kind of helped bring that together, a steering committee. So that program had been live for several years at that point. And a lot of, I, I think part of, part of the response for us was, it was that pre-incident education. I, and I'm not just talking about from um, my team's approach, but I'm talking about for the entire Connecticut State Police approach. In the academy, we would have in-service training academy and new recruits that were coming through the academy would get exposure to things that you and I didn't when we went through our respective academies. You know, we learned about motor vehicle law and criminal law and how to, you know, make your bed and shine your shoes. But the one thing that we really didn't drill down on and, and nobody really knew how to talk about it at the time was, was wellness, right? It's not a matter of if you're going to be exposed to something horrific in your career. It's just a matter of when. I think now we have a different approach in how we look at that. So what we do is we educate people ahead of time about those universal and predictable signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress. All of our recruits got that in the academy for years before Sandy Hook. So they were understanding, all right, when this happens, this is how I'm going to feel. This is what my family's gonna look for. This is what they're gonna recognize. When these things happen, I know when I'm, when I'm gonna be off. I know what's healthy. We did debriefings, we did diffusings, we did interventions, crisis management briefings, all the things we know to do, but it wasn't foreign to our personnel, which was important because when we went to that scene, I knew that my team was very well trained, but I also knew that the vast majority of the troopers that were at that scene also had some idea of what this follow-up was gonna look like. They knew about self-care. They also knew that they were going to be overwhelmed by some very, very difficult uh, images, as you can imagine, going into that school. So our job was to try to help them unpack that on the other side, because what we didn't want was, was to have cases of post-traumatic stress injury turn into post-traumatic stress disorder. So we brought our team together uh, at the scene. We set up a respite center. So we were able to take the troopers uh, and the officers that were exposed initially that went into the school. We were able to get them away from that scene. We had chaplains there. We had peer support people there. We had clinicians from our employee assistance program there. 
to begin that process, even if it's just the normalization of talking about it. Because I think as we look at firefighters for an, for an example, uh, in their vocation, they seem to be much healthier psychologically than police. And part of that reason I think we recognize is that when they're done with their call, they go back to the firehouse and they talk about whatever their exposure was. Mm -hmm. But by talking about it, whether it's in, in, you know, rolling hoses or sitting at the dining table, by, that's a normalization. They talk about, oh, I see Jim, you felt the same way I did. I don't feel like the Lone Ranger anymore. Police don't get that opportunity in most cases. They're going from call to call to call. And unfortunately, by doing that, you're compartmentalizing all this bad, all these bad things. And it's like your attic. You can only put so many boxes in the attic before you have to clean it out. So we recognize that. We got the officers out of there, but it wasn't enough to do that. And it wasn't enough to do the follow-ups that we did because we followed a real protocol that we had already established through the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation Mitchell model. That's what we're following. So we're doing these debriefings. We're making sure everybody gets notification. We're not just doing debriefings for the officers. We're doing debriefings for the spouses and significant, significant others because we recognize that collateral impact that is happening because these men and women are going home and they're bringing this trauma with them. So we did that and then it's follow-up and it's more follow-up. And unfortunately, some of those folks that were exposed to Sandy Hook um, made some, some unhealthy choices with, with compensatory mechanisms. Maybe their careers started to fall apart, marriages fell apart. This is a very small minority though, compared to where we, I think, would have been had we not taken those really proactive steps in making sure that our folks, number one, had some pre-incident education, but number two, stayed on top of making sure that we offered every layer for them that we could, a real holistic approach. And we did that. And we even went outside the box a little bit and said, all right, well, we've done all that we could, but is that enough? I don't think it's enough. So let's now bring in folks that have been trained in different modalities, clinicians that understand things like EMDR, brain spotting, somatic experiencing, all these different things, cognitive behavioral therapy. Let's bring them in. Let's, let's let them talk to our people in a real one-on-one. -on -one. We can do group discussions. And that's what we started to do. We changed the approach a little bit because we needed to continue to keep that conversation going because if we didn't take care of our people, we knew what the, what the inevitable result could be. Uh, and sadly, that result, that, that far out result that we're all trying to, to stay away from is law enforcement suicide. And we couldn't lose anybody. And, uh, you know, and we haven't, I'm going to knock on wood, but we haven't. Um, and that wasn't by accident. I will tell you that the, the men and women that I worked with in that agency were the highest caliber of folks that I've ever been around in law enforcement. Um, but they knew enough that none of us are our Superman or Wonder Woman, right? Our shield can only go up just so high and it's only so thick. And when you're dealing with things, especially uh, a mass casualty event with children, um, it's gonna penetrate your armor. And our folks recognize that. And I give them all the credit for having the courage to step up and say, I'm gonna accept what you're offering because I think that 20 or 30 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have happened. It would have been, uh, sort of that suck it up and drive on mentality, rub a little dirt in it and get back in the game. And uh, we've seen what's happened over the years. I, I know coming up through that, uh, a lot of the people that trained me and broke me in were from that Vietnam generation. And uh, they turned to alcohol or other different things in order to sort of get through their day. And sadly, didn't really have the quality of life and the quality of retirement. I think that cradle to the grave philosophy is the way that, that administrators need to think about taking care of their people. 
It's not, it's not just that 20 or 30 year career. That's not enough. You were healthy mentally, physically, and spiritually when you got here, and you should be on the other end of your career as well. So we wanted to, to give people all of the tools, all of the attention that we could to ensure that they could not only enjoy a very fruitful and rewarding career, but also to get to that point of retirement. Many of the men and women that I've served with are in retirement now, and they're enjoying their lives. That was not, it was a horrific day, but it wasn't the obstacle or the barrier that they couldn't get around. Our job was to knock down those barriers. And I think as we look at wellness and resilience, people who are in that field, that is your job. Your job is to knock down those barriers so they're not in the way of the people that need it. And I think that uh, I think having that approach, uh, that, that team philosophy that we had, and it was very fortunately for us, it was something that was accepted from the top down and the bottom up, which is not something that you always see. But I think everybody in our agency realized what, what the alternative was if we didn't do it right. And uh, I, I, you know, I applaud the fact that they've taken some really great steps over the years to, to continue those programs, uh, to, to augment and enhance those programs. And as we now are seeing more and better things appearing, uh, it, implementing those as well. Yeah, well, un unimaginable horror uh, at that scene, I can imagine. And a lot of things that you just brought up, <clears throat> I spoke recently with Cindy Doyle. She's the spouse of a law enforcement officer, and she's a psychotherapist. And she, mm -hmm. she mentioned the exact same things you talked about when you go home, about decompression and communication and having a ritual. Like you talk about firefighters, right? They, right. they go back to the, the firehouse and they put away the hoses or shoot hoops or whatever they do. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, we don't get those breaks in law enforcement. Oftentimes you're just sent on to the next one. And um, how important is it for the after action or the debriefing? Uh, did you do peer debriefings? Did you close them down for just the people involved? Uh, were people satisfied yeah. talking that? So I think, uh, you know, the key here is the, those groups, and we did a 33 debriefings to be exact, which is a lot of debriefings for, for a team of our size. But, you know, fortunately, we had a couple teams to help with us, all sworn folks and then chaplains that were on our team and clinicians from our employee assistance program. We even had clinicians that were also members, sworn members of the state police. So there was a lot of credibility with our team. Our team had been around. This wasn't the first set of debriefings that we've done. We would respond out to other mass casualty type of events, not on that, uh, on that level, but um, you know, murders, uh, deadly use of force events, uh, things involving children, multiple homicides, we would roll out to those. Um, so it wasn't the first time that our people had seen it, but the key here are those homogeneous groups. So what we needed to do was break down those groups. So you have sort of the first responders. So those are those are the, the folks that showed up first. They went in the door first. And then there's the second first responders, if you will, right? So you see at some point we're breaking this down. And, and I think that the real key to this is you're not just inviting everybody in. First of all, we had to do debriefings. There was 213 Connecticut State Police folks exposed to that alone. Now, when you look at that, not everybody had experience in the school. Some people were at the school and they were maybe directing traffic down the street the next day. What we wanted to be mindful of is, and believe me, I will tell you that I'm not minimizing the traumatic impact 
of being out, out in front of the command post directing traffic a day or two later because there were people showing up with Christmas trees for kids and ornaments and uh, stuffed animals and crying. And you can just imagine the overwhelming sorrow that just struck the entire community. It, and I would say the nation, but I had an opportunity to talk about this in Europe on a, on a, a I was lecturing over there and people there were asking questions about it because they remember it and were talking about it. So this really was a sort of a worldwide event. So those folks who were out directing traffic, they had exposure. They had a traumatic event, but a little bit different than the traumatic event for the folks that went in the front door. So what we didn't wanna do is bring those individuals together because I didn't wanna minimize the folks who were the first responders because they would naturally not fully disclose their worst part because if they did, they would maybe be traumatizing more so the person directing traffic. And you wouldn't wanna shut down the person directing, directing traffic by inviting them in with a first responder because now they're gonna say, I'm in the wrong room. This poor, this poor person really had it much worse than me. So what we would did was we broke those down in the homogeneous groups. If you were a support person, this is, this is where you are. First responder, second first responder, uh, major crimes folks, um, uh, administrators, right? So you're looking at command staff. A lot of folks, we had command staff that came in with rank and file people and sat down and, uh, and really opened up. And I will tell you, they were the most emotional debriefings I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, members of all ranks that came in and checked their rank at the door and recognized that um, I'm a person, I'm a, I'm a human being first, and no human being should ever be exposed to something on this level. And to see folks come together and re really for many that debriefing is not only that normalization, but it's not, it really begins the healing process for a lot of folks. And there's also an educational component. So we have our therapist in there to talk about if, if you're recognizing these signs and symptoms now, as we are uh, several days out, you should be doing these self-care items. You should be thinking about taking care of yourself in this way. We have the spiritual component by bringing a chaplain in because many people, when you're involved, it's, it's sort of like the old army expression, there's no atheists in the foxhole. Right. When you're exposed to something of that magnitude, especially involving children, many people in those debriefings will ask the questions, and we heard this, if there's a God, how could this have happened? Mm -hmm. And it's not as a sworn person or as, or as somebody who's a clinician in there, that's not really their position to speak to that, it's really the chaplain's position. So we brought that entire approach. So when folks were walking out the other side of that debriefing, they felt like they were not only supported, but armed with the tools necessary to get through the day, to get through the next week, to get through that career. And, and many of them were able to get back to it just simply by going to the, the debriefing and beginning that healing. Some of them had some stumbling blocks and we would work through those stumbling blocks and come up with solutions to help them as well. Nobody was ever abandoned. And that was the key. We wanted our folks to feel supported and not just our folks. We recognize that as a, the largest law enforcement agency in Connecticut, that we needed to take care of folks that maybe didn't have as many resources, municipal partners that showed up, some of the federal partners that showed up, but it showed up in small groups. So they didn't have that large support. Uh, some of the fire service folks that didn't, they didn't have critical incident stress management teams. We didn't want to leave them out. Uh, so we triaged our people and we triaged others as well because we realize that that support is, is significant. And the beginning of that healing is as well. And, and part of that is letting folks know, this is what you're going to, this is what you may experience. We know what you've experienced, this is what you may experience. And if you do, we're here for you and we're gonna help you get through that. Um, so I think that was really, 
the, those debriefings, I don't think that folks can underscore enough, and I certainly cannot underscore enough, the importance of, of having those follow-ups. You know, I, I hear uh, the argument sort of that goes back and forth with many administrators about whether it should be mandatory or whether it shouldn't be. And I've heard solid arguments made on both sides of that, whether it should be a mandatory to have a debriefing. I don't think you want to have hostages in the room, but sadly, if you don't make it mandatory, many people who need it most are going to be the ones that sort of skirt around it or people that think that they don't need it. And that's really the key. Right. Um, you know, and I, and I think that's easily explainable. I always say to them, even if you feel like you don't need it and you're not going to get anything out of this, please attend the debriefing because the man or woman to your right and left may need that support. Your wingman needs that support. You should be there for them. Your presence alone may, may help them through the process. So I, I think that there are good arguments to be made, um, but there's not enough debriefing. Uh, one of the things I found as I go around the country and and talk to law enforcement when I ask people in the room, how many folks have been to a debriefing or a diffusing or an intervention or have even had a crisis management brief? Very few hands. I started to see it go, go up. It's going up, but not like it should. Yeah, every hand, much. every hand who's been in law enforcement should be up in that room. For so sure. I think that, you know, whether, whether you have all the resources that an agency like mine had or whether you're a small 10-person department, regionalize, find somebody who can come in work to, you know, reach out to us, reach out, reach out to the folks in officer safety and wellness. Let us help you. I can, we, we can pair you up with programs that can help you understand what resources are available. But, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Vietnam folks have a, another great saying, we know too much to get it wrong this time. We do know too much to get it wrong. Right. Thanks so much, uh, Troy Anderson. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. All right. And to our listeners, hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed listening today about the National Law Enforcement Officers uh, Museum and Memorial. And we'll see you real soon. Drop me a line at policingmatters at police1.com, an email at policingmatters at police1.com. Uh, let me know what you think. Let me know who you want to hear from, what you'd like to hear about. And hey, stay safe. Watch your six. Be safe. Take good care. I'm Jim Dudley. 